Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Tess Salmon, media advisor to New South Wales Deputy Premier Troy Grant. Before working for the government, Tess spent close to a decade working in radio as a journalist for 2SM and 2UE. She chats about what role Stan Zamanik played in the early days of her career, learning the ropes under the guidance of some radio legends, and how she deals with the pressure of working in politics. Tess is someone who's very intelligent and thoughtful, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Tess Salmon. Hello, Ralph Tucker. How are you? I'm very well. Good to see you. We're currently sitting in the office of Deputy Premier Troy Grant That's at right. Parliament House. Yes, we are. How very exciting. It is a bit exciting. It's my first visit here, actually. Welcome. Um, <laughs> how long have you been working for him for? For Troy, I've been working for about two and a half years, uh, pretty much since he became a minister. So the timing coincided with I was working for Michael Gallagher, the former police minister. Um, he obviously had to leave government amid some uh, allegations and the timing was such that um, Troy had just become a minister and um, invited me to work for him. Now, before that, you had a long career in radio for a couple of radio stations. Let's even go back further than that. Was media something that you were always interested in when you were at school or growing up? It was. I think um, English was my favourite subject at school. I'm not very mathematical or scientific type of person. Um, I loved writing. I always loved writing. I always used to describe myself as an ambulance chaser. I remember vividly as a child, you know, I'd hear sirens, police, fire, ambulance, and I'd always want my mum to follow them to see where they went and what was at the other end. And, I mean, she didn't. <laughs> it wasn't that crazy. But, um, yeah, I, I used to love the thrill of the chase from a very young age and combine that with writing. I think I went through the usual stages of wanting to be, you know, a teacher, a lawyer and all of those things, an actress that young girls do. But, um, yeah, definitely writing was something that interested me for a long time. So how was it then that, you made that progression then from obviously wanting a career in media to actually putting it into place? Sure. So I, when I left school, um, you know, I did well my HSC, but at the time journalism was a very popular subject and I think in order to get into Bathurst it was like 98 in your HSC. Something ridiculous, like you could be better off like trying to go and become a doctor then go Correct, and yeah. get communications because of how popular it exactly. was. Exactly. It was so difficult. You needed, yeah, pretty much the same, like you'd need to be a lawyer or a doctor to get into journalism. Um, and it was around the days that Sandra Sully was, you know, the it woman in, in journalism and everyone wanted to be Sandra Sully. So I, um, I kind of looked at my other options and found a private college that taught journalism, um, McClay College, and I kind of looked into that and, yeah, signed up and, Away we went. Tell me about the benefits of that course. I went there probably about 10 years before you did. But, um, again, same sort of thing, you know, obviously aspirations to, to work in, in media or, or, or radio and that course was just there and it was the one year. So mm, exactly. it kind of fast-tracked your learning in, in many ways and yep. as I've discussed with a few people that also went through Maclay College, the, the great advantage was that it offered a whole lot of work experience as part of it. Is that what you enjoyed most about that, yeah, that course as well? I did. I enjoyed um, how practically based it was. You know, there was a lot of 
hands-on experience. You know, you'd get in there and you'd you'd make a radio show or you'd make a new TV news bulletin and, you know, we did that very early on. We learned about the inner workings of radio and TV and I really enjoyed that. I love that and I, I love that it was fast. It was it was intensive. You know, it was at the time that I did it, it was Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, you were there. It was like having a full-time job. But it kind of set you up quite well too for having, you know, the long hours and the pressure and everything because, you know, you've come out of year 12 where you've done, you know, two subjects in the morning and then had four hours of free time and, you know, where I went to school, you went down to the beach and laid in the sun. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. It was a fast-paced, practical course and it really set you up. And um, I did a little bit of work experience when I was there, mostly sort of in magazines and radio, um, TV. I think I went to Channel 9 for a bit. Um, but it wasn't – it was sort of halfway through my course and coincidentally through my mum, through her business, that um, she had a client there one day and – I was telling my mum about a subject I had to do and the woman overheard me and said, oh, you should beat my husband. He's on radio. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. No worries. Didn't even bother to inquire who her husband was. Great journalistic skills <laughs> early on. Um, and she invited me to the radio station, which was 2UE, and on on the 8th of April, it was, in 2005. And I got there and all of a sudden I was faced with this man who I'd recognised from television and I thought, oh, my God, that's that horrible man from Beauty and the Beast, Stan Zamanik. Oh, And wow. I was I was shocked. I was like, oh, my God, he, he's a horrible person. And um turned out he's absolutely lovely and delightful. And I my first night of work experience at 2UE was the night of Pope John Paul II's funeral. And it was just chaotic. It was it was organised chaos, but the buzz, the environment, the adrenaline pumping through that place was addictive and I wanted to go back again and again and again and I did that for about three months. I just kept going back. So every, you know, two, every second night I think after college I'd go to TUE and, you know, help out, you know, prepping interviews, writing questions and things. And after three months they invited me to be paid, which was exciting. So that experience on work experience that was the moment that you decided, okay, it's not print, it's not TV, it's going to be radio. Yes. I love the immediacy of radio. I loved that you could have something put in front of you and it and broadcast it straight away. That in and as I later learnt in, you know, a radio newsroom, you could be at one story, half an hour later be at another story. I could cover six different types of stories in the one day. And I loved that. I loved being able to just have the variety and the immediacy and yeah, be out there. So what did you learn from that period of work experience on the Stan Zamanik show, which in many ways was a really fast-paced and, and groundbreaking show? I mean, he went to 2GB for a while and then down to Melbourne and then came back and, and, and slotted straight back into his nighttime role. But he enjoyed that whole variety is what you mentioned before. So it could be talking politics and then mm. it could be jumping into something completely different and then having that really, I think what most people enjoyed was that interaction with the talkback callers that sort of he made his own and entertaining. Exactly. He, I think I've always said about Stan, you know, he kind of taught me the meaning of a persona, a radio persona. He, you know, on, on air he could be cruel and quick-witted and nasty and, you know, even sometimes vicious to some of his callers. And he often used to say, you know, 50% of my listeners hate me, the other 50% love me, but they all listen anyway because they all enjoy the entertainment. Off air, he was incredibly sweet and down-to-earth and a kind, gentle man. Um, so I really learned about this whole on-air personality. Um, I think I also learned during that time, you know, 
how to write for talkback, how to, you know, deal with situations as they're breaking, you know, news would break and we'd have to get the information to him on air quite quickly. Um, I think also learning how different uh, announcers operate, you know, with working with Stan, I got the opportunity to work with other announcers, Mike Carlton, John Laws, Steve Price, um, the boys on the sports show. And, you know, each of them have a different sort of viewpoint on something or a different way that they want to express their views and learning how to write differently for, for each of them was quite an interesting journey. And so did Stan offer you any advice in those early days or people that you worked in uh, worked with on that particular show, did they sort of set you on a path that you thought of radio in a, in a different way? Yeah, definitely. I think um, Stan definitely taught me to appreciate radio for what it was. I think a lot of people who went into radio you know, certainly a lot of the people I studied with, TV was the ultimate goal. And I didn't have that as much. I, you know, I appreciated television, but radio, I, he really taught me how to appreciate what radio is and, and, and make it as glamorous as television is perceived to be. And um, also just not to quit. I think most people will say that. And I worked with um, Melanie Withnall as well. And she, she was brilliant and she pretty much taught me everything I, I know in terms of producing and um, really took me under her wing like a big sister. Um, I think their advice was always just keep going. Don't ever say, take no as an answer and, enjoy it, enjoy it. And yeah, I really did. So you got the job while you were still studying. Yeah. What then made that transition from, okay, you finished your, your course at Maclay College, as we've said, it only went for, for one year, mm-hmm. but you'd already picked up a job through work experience. Mm. Where did it then twig for you that you wanted to go down the path of becoming a radio journalist and or newsreader? Yeah. So I think I, I really loved the adrenaline when there was breaking news that would come in the newsroom and up to the studio and I, I wanted to be involved in that. I always loved the concept of being a reporter, being a journalist. That's what I set out to do initially. Um, so I think I, I was a producer for sort of 18 months um, on different, various different shows at 2UE. I think I worked across every single show on 2UE. Um, and then I kind of thought, okay, now's the time where I need to knuckle down and get on with what I really want to do. So I took the decision to leave 2UE and I went over to 2SM very curious little station with carpeted walls and an interesting owner. Um, and I, yeah, learnt how to read live news. I learnt how to time out, how to gather stories, how to put a bulletin together. And um, it was a great learning curve to do that and to do it at 2SM. It was almost like having being on a cadetship when I was there. And, you know, I met some wonderful people. I met Cassandra Wood there, um, Georgina McCaro. Um, you know, people who I'm still friendly with today. Cass is one of my best friends. Um, and I did that, I think, for eight months. And then Clinton Maynard, the news, um, news director at TUE, summoned me back, back home. I always say he summoned me back home. And, and that's where I stayed for another six years. Talk to me about that 2SM experience. As a number of people who work there, what I've spoken to on this podcast series, it's kind of like, like you sort of said, it's a, it was a cadetship, but you didn't have to go outside of Sydney. You were training pretty much here. It's based, the studios are based in, in Piermont. So you didn't necessarily have the pressure of a, a 2UE or a 2GB. So you could pretty much make your mistakes and get your, your your flying hours up on a on a station that was while it was based in Sydney it, it pretty much catered to the country area so yeah take me through that ex, that whole experience yeah like I think um 
to to SM was a great learning curve in terms of getting your feet in the door for news reading and being able to make those mistakes. Um, it it has a wide syndication throughout New South Wales, and it's funny like when you're a newsreader you're in your own little news booth and you don't actually think anyone's listening. And even more so when you're on 2SM, you're in Sydney, but you don't actually remember that there's, you know, hundreds of people out in the regional areas actually listening to your news. And and it's not until you get a call saying you've mispronounced a town or you've said a word wrong that you remember that people are actually listening. So I think it was, you know, great to get in there and learn, like I said, to put a bulletin together and and how that all works, you know, the actual structure of a news bulletin. And I remember one night I was sitting there, I think I was on an overnight shift and I put my bulletin together. I read it on air. I timed out perfectly. I was so proud of myself. And then I listened to Laura Tunstall, who was on TUE at the time and um, her bulletin, my bulletin were exactly the same. And I remember thinking, I've done it. I've made it. This is it. I can graduate now. (laughs) I was so happy that I had I felt like I'd achieved an understanding of, of news and, and how it works. So who taught you those fundamentals in the early days? Look, I think it was a combination of of instinct, um, just having to do it yourself, um, and your colleagues that you work with, as well as people on rival stations, you know, listening to the news all the time and seeing how the bulletins are structured and then just giving it a go. There wasn't a great deal of... Um, guidance at 2SM. There, you know, um, there are definitely people there and there was a news director, Diane Covenant-Garland, who's still there and she's a lovely woman. Um, but often you're, you're in there on your own. There, there was, it was not like the newsrooms of 2GB and 2UE where it's buzzing with people. You're often there by yourself and you've just got to make it up as you go. And that's really how you learned, just doing it yourself and making those mistakes. How important is it to immerse yourself in the news? Because Obviously, you've got to live and breathe it in order to present it because you don't want to be presenting stories that might be, you know, in some cases like a day or a day and a half old. So in order to really present well, you have to be across everything as it's happening. Would you say that that's a really important facet for anybody that's looking to sort of get into to journalism? Absolutely. And I think um, when I started out very early on, I remember I used to put the um, pictures and names and portfolios of all the ministers and the shadow cabinet on the back of my bedroom door and I would study them and it was the Labor government and it kept changing. So, you know, every few weeks I'd learn the whole cabinet and I'd have to change it all over again. But I really wanted to immerse myself and I wanted to be as cr- across journalism and media and news as I could be. And I, um, yeah, I really did. I'd read the papers. I would listen to radio shows. I think I never took my, my car radio off the AM stations because that's where you learn the most about news. You know, the FM stations are great and they do have their own news format, but when it's being, you know, on the AM stations, the talkback stations, it's literally talked about all day long. And that's where you kind of learn and you hear of different opinions and different you know, ways of looking at things and, yeah, you just absorb it. So definitely getting right in there. And I've always said that when I go back to McClay College and I have a chat to the students there, just absorb it, get amongst it. You cannot not know what's going on. And not just in New South Wales or Australia, but the whole world. You need to know what's happening everywhere. How has the advent of social media changed all of that? Because obviously back when you started, I think that probably would have been in the very early days of social media and news channels or um, content providers weren't actually using it as a, as a tool which they now use as, as commonplace and Twitter certainly hadn't hit the ground at that stage. So it was more a reliance on 
like we said, your knowledge and being able to deliver that and, and your awareness as to, to what's going on was now you seem to be pretty much like, you know, boxed in by it all. It, it's all around you wherever you look, whereas before you'd watch TV, they wouldn't do as much role in coverage. So um, how do you think it's actually changed the way news is presented these days? I think it's it's changed a lot in terms of the media platform. I mean, you know, traditional forms of journalism are slowly fading away. And even, you know, in government, we, we sometimes make announcements via Facebook or Twitter. And, you know, it's it's definitely when I started, I think um, in the TUE days, there there was some Facebook, I think Facebook was starting up and it took me a while before I got actually onto Facebook. And then I think Twitter only started up um, maybe the year or two before I left TUE or at least it became popular enough that I was aware of it. Um, and I remember Latika Burke being right on Twitter straight away. She she saw it as a platform to deliver news and she got the 140 characters and she every time she went to a story she'd tweet about it. And I, I just remember thinking, what is this? Like, <coughs> why? Who's, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's reading it? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, looking back now, she had incredible foresight as to how it would take off and become this new platform to report the news. And now anyone can be a news reporter, essentially. Let's talk about now you mentioned you went through your cadetship at 2SM. You were back at 2UE. Mm -hmm. How was that progression for you? Obviously, like we said, 2SM was a great learning curve, but 2UE with its rich history of of news and and current affairs and and talkback radio, you'd had a taste of it being a producer. What was it like going back there as a a radio journalist? I was over the moon. I was so excited to be back there and to be working with people who I respected and admired and followed and wanted to be like people like Steve Blander. Um, You know, I remember one of my first weeks at Back in the newsroom, I followed Dane Svensson around. He was the court reporter at the time and there was the Diane Brimble um, case on the coroner's court and I remember going to that and and being faced with, you know, not only the reporting side of it but actually the human side of the story where you're faced with a family wanting answers, a prosecution trying to get justice, you know, men who are accused of horrible crime um, and actually getting a taste for that and it was something that I didn't experience so much at 2SM. 2SM, it was more about reading the news, less about reporting, whereas at 2UE I really got to sink in and actually get out on the road and start seeing stories and constructing a story from a crime scene. And, yeah, it was it was thrilling. It was really thrilling. Like the adre- you can't really explain the adrenaline that you get when you get a call saying there's, you know, dead body in a gutter or whatever it might be. It's, it's a horrible thing to say and you do learn these sort of coping mechanisms and to desensitise yourself from it all. Um, and I think to this day there's something fundamentally wrong with people who get enjoyment or a thrill out of a call like that um, or, you know, a, a court case that's about to be, you know, convictions about to be handed down or something. And you, you get excited by that, but I am one of those people. <laughs> How do you manage your emotions in a situation like that? Because, like you say, you might sort of see some horrible things out on the road, particularly if you're on the um, police reporters' rounds or you go to court and you hear things that are suppressed for legal reasons, mm-hmm. but obviously you still have to experience that kind of thing. How do you go through that emotionally knowing full well that you then within a matter of minutes, have to deliver that news on air and sound confident and positive when ultimately 
the stories that you're reporting on are downright, downright horrible. Yeah, look, it's it's one of those things that I struggled with at first. I think um, very quickly you learn what you are capable of absorbing and what you're not. There is a level of desensitising. You kind of you shut a part of you down um, and you don't sort of take it on board. Interestingly, and it didn't really hit me until a long time after, in fact, just you know a couple of years ago after having left radio, that I think all those things that I'd heard and seen, and, you know, I, I witnessed horrible crime scenes. I heard court cases. I remember one court case that I literally had to leave the, the courtroom because the evidence was so graphic and so horrific that I thought I was going to vomit. It was just that bad. You know, sitting through the Milton Orcopolis trial, um, you know, there are court cases that baffle you. Crime scenes have been called to, you know, a dead baby in a gift box in a garden bed. And you get there and you have no other choice but to not think about it and not think about the fact that it's, it is a dead baby or that, you know, some person has suffered this horrific injury or crime or, or whatever. Um, you kind of have to shut it down and just report the news, obviously with the emotion that it, it deserves, but without getting emotional. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that there was a couple of other incidents um, in in where I work now in, in government, um, like the siege, that my emotions kind of ticked over and I think I I finally acknowledged all the things that I had seen and went, oh, shit, that was actually quite bad and I witnessed that. Now also talk to me about delivering that kind of information because a lot of it can be quite complex and you want to say so much but you've got such a short period of time like in a news report you might have to deliver a really long story in a space of 30 seconds for a news bulletin obviously crosses can be a bit longer because you can answer questions but was there anybody that taught you how to construct a really well put together voicer or, as we call them, donuts, where you also insert audio into the, mm. the report that you're delivering? I think a few people. Um, definitely Clinton Maynard was extremely supportive um, as a news director. He really taught me a lot of, of, lot of tips, I guess, in terms of how to condense your story and what because it can be overwhelming on what to leave out and what to put into a story when you've got so much information. So I think, you know, we'd go through some stories sometimes in the early days and he'd say, okay, cut that out, cut that out. Why, why put this line in? What relevance does it have? You've got to remember that, you know, you, you're spending, you know, 10 minutes writing this story, but the listener is only going to hear it once. And I think that really resonated. And I I still to this day, even when I prep the deputy premier on things, you know, I, try and tell him to say things in a way that people are only going to hear it once. We'll go over it and we'll prep him, but, you know, the audience will hear it once. So I think it's really important to kind of really know your market and know what it is that you, what is important to, it might be important to you and you might think that's a really interesting aspect of the story, but is it important to everybody else? Um, uh, Greg Burns also was really influential. He was um, former news director and then the program director at 2UE and he often came and gave his two cents worth and I found him always really interesting. Steve Blander, of course, uh, a fountain of knowledge and so supportive and just a delightful human being. Um, Dan Sutton in the early days often used to help me. Um, we obviously got on quite well. We're good friends now and, yeah, he used to give me 
you know, critical advice and tell me how to write stories. And having been a journalist, he was a police reporter at TUE for a long time before he went to Channel 10. And, you know, he'd say, well, if, if I was going to write it, I'd write it this way. And through seeing how other people do it, you learn different techniques and how to condense and expand and all of that. How important is it for it all to just be conversational? Because you go to court and there's a lot of complex terms and, and things that people say and and even going to like a a police job you might have somebody that says something in a different way I mean ultimately you just want to be able to tell a story the way that you would tell a friend is that how you approach stories yeah I think early on someone said to me you know I'd been to a court case and I think I'd written a story and I'd filed it and then I came back to the newsroom and they I think it might have been Greg Burns and he sat me down and he said okay don't look at your notes just tell me what happened in court. Tell me about it. And so I told him in a way that I would tell a mate. And he said, that's how you have to write your story. Because Joe Blow out in, you know, Penrith doesn't know about the court jargon and he doesn't care about the lingo. It's That's not important to him. What's important to him is the basics of the story. And the way you've just told it to me, that's how you need to tell it to him too. You've sort of touched on a few people that you worked with there at 2UE. Was it a bit of a, bit of a surreal feeling, someone that had always sort of loved radio, you'd been in there as an assistant producer and all of that kind of thing, to step into that newsroom where there were so many, and it's a bit of a, a loose term, but so many household names that used to work there and then all of a sudden you're one of the team that's part of it. And, you know, like you said, Greg Burns and mm. Steve Blander and Clinton Maynard, mm. these are guys that have, have loved radio from, mm. from day dot and then all of a sudden you're part of that that team. What was that like? Yeah, it was um, it was intimidating at first. It was really intimidating to sort of – I remember when I first met Michael Packy, I was like, oh, God, what do I – everyone calls him Packy. He's yeah. Packy, Pac-Man. Um, and, you know, I was like, oh, hello, Michael, it's really nice to meet you. And he's looking at me a bit like – Packy will do, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a bit intimidating, but it's quite. There's such like radio is a family, and and no matter whether you work at Two UE or at Two GB or at Triple M or Today FM, Nova, whatever it is, everyone gets on. There's 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 the perceived rivalry, and there is a little bit on the road, but you know everyone helps each other out, and very quickly you just get absorbed into that family, and everyone's your mate. When you're at Two UE, you would have done like a number of different things. So can you take us through your progression? So from the when you arrived, mm-hmm. they would have had you doing, I would imagine you would have been part of the pool of reporters yep. and or doing mid-dawns. Yes, that's right. And then how does it go from there? Yeah, so I, um, like you say, was in the pool um, reporting, I think, you know, a few days a week, doing overnight shifts, early morning shifts, the backup shift during the week, um, which would assist, you know, the police reporter or the newsreader. Um, and then I got to do um, the weekend editing shift on the on breakfast, which was um, a great experience, you know, having to put your bulletin together. You know, I'd get to work at sort of 3, 3.30 in the morning, um, read through all the papers, see what's happened overnight in the wires, Um and start prepping bulletins from, well, for the first bulletin at 5 a.m. and read right through until I think it was 1 o'clock or 11 a.m. Um, then the, the afternoon shift would come on, and I did that probably for about two years at 2UE, um, which killed my social life completely. <laughs> but it was such a great experience, and I think I reported three days during the week. And then um, I did... I was going to say the training ground there on the weekends because I'll, essentially news doesn't stop just because it's the weekend. Exactly. But- there's less of you in there because it is the weekend. So editing and reading and covering breaking news that may happen, it's really good in terms of 
being able to prove to yourself that you can actually do it by yourself without the assistance of others. Absolutely. You know, you get in there after an overnight shift and after a few years, we stopped doing weekend overnights and it was syndicated out of, um, I think it was Victoria, out of our Melbourne studio. And, um, yeah, you kind of get in there and there's no one in the building except for, you know, one announcer and one producer up at the other end for um, the on-air. And you get in there and you've got to kind of wake up. There's no one there to wake you up. You've got to wake up yourself, eat some food, start reading the papers and start deciding what is the first story that needs to come out of this bulletin and what's next. And, you know, it is a little bit tricky, you know, once when you're in a day shift, you know, the news kind of just flows from the morning through to the evening. But when you start at three o'clock in the morning, you've kind of, you're starting fresh and you've got to decide what the agenda of the day is going to be and what is that, you know, make that decision. What's the lead story. Sometimes it was really clear, you know, sometimes there was a front page splash that you go, Oh, well, that's my story or they've been breaking news overnight. But when it was one of those days where there wasn't that much news around and you've got to decide what the lead story is, you really had to rely on, you know, your instincts and, you know, your news sense. So the progression was then from weekend editor to to where you sort of... So then I started doing a bit of crime and court reporting. So um, mostly did courts, um, a lot of court stories, which I loved I from very early on. And I don't know whether it was being introduced to the coroner's court as my first week at TUE, but getting that love of courts. And I loved, I loved the customs of the courts. You know, you'd go in and, you know, you bow to the magistrate or the judge. You have to cover your shoulders if you're a female and you're wearing a singlet top in the middle of summer, you know, just little old world customs like that, that I really enjoyed. Um, and the copious amounts of information that would come out of it. And again, it's almost like a personal challenge to decide what, what's the key line or the key angle of this court case that you're going to run in that hour's news. So I did a lot of court reporting, crime reporting. I've been to more funerals than I care to remember. Um, Lots of crime scenes, dead bodies, bus crashes. I reported on World Youth Day with the Pope. I mean, I've done it all. It's It was awesome. Um, And I think I'd I'd probably reported for about three or four years and then I did six months of evening reading at TUE, so reading from 7 till 11, um, and and then I jumped ship to the dark side. Now, what was that like in terms of, okay, being out there, reporting from the scene, and then adjusting back to being the newsreader? It's a different kind of vibe, and it's a different kind of feel, and some people enjoy, you know, the fact that they're out on the um, reporting beat and they, they love the thrill of, of that and filing every hour and, you know, trying to find new angles for stories and, like you said, being in court and all that. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into that newsroom atmosphere, which is completely different again. Mm. I I love both. Like I loved reading and I loved reporting. I think I loved reporting more. Um Reading was was fun. It was enjoyable. It was a bit of a challenge. Um, it was really fun on the weekends, particularly when I had a sports reader. Matt DeGroote was my sports reader, and we had a lot of fun. We used to make each other try and he used to try and make me laugh on air, which he succeeded a couple of times. Um, but yeah, reporting I think is. I don't know, you can't describe, like I said before, the adrenaline and the thrill of the chase and being able to be at, you know, a political doorstop one minute and then, you know, a crime scene the next and then back to court for a decision at 2 o'clock. You know, there's there's something fundamentally exhilarating about being able to just jump from one thing to the next and, you know, filing a story with, you know, 30 seconds to go before the pips start and, you know, that 
thrill, um, I think is what I thrived on. You know, I've always worked better under pressure and being able to come out of a court decision that was handed down at two o'clock and the magistrates talked and, you know, handed down the decision until, you know, 10-2 and you've got to write a story on the guilty verdict or the not guilty verdict and you literally have seconds to get it to air and oh, that's what I loved. You talked earlier about how all people in radio are friends but there's still that competitive nature of the business of like trying to beat the other person to a cross or, you know, you might be at a story where the other person isn't. Talk to me about what it's like being on the road with those other reporters because quite often in the case of being in court or being a police reporter, you often rely on each other to get your stories to air. Yeah, absolutely. I think... um you know, you spend hours with people from rival networks sitting in gutters, waiting at crime scenes, whatever it might be, and you you have a friendly rivalry. At the same time, you know, if their tape recorder breaks or something, you give them the tape. You know, you don't, you're not an asshole. Well, I would hope I was I wasn't an <laughs> asshole. Some people might be, but um I think yeah, you you do help each other out and you know, you, you have instances where you get to a story late and you need to be filled in and you help someone out or they help you. Um, but then there are times where you get a tip off for something, you know, whether it's from a lawyer or a prosecutor or from a cop or, you know, anyone in the community who has heard something, you don't exactly rush to share that with, with your opponent. And, you know, you'll, you, I've always said you win some, you lose some, and you can't beat yourself up when you don't get the edge, but definitely celebrate the victories. And I think that's what we did. You know, you win some, you lose some. We're all still friends at the end of the day. Having seen it from the other side of the fence now, having worked in government for quite some time, do you think things have changed a little bit in the the, the way that it, the news is presented by virtue of the fact that there doesn't appear to be any scoops anymore because there's a lot of organised media conferences and that's part of your job now to, to sort of do that or to head the stories off at the pass, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's very different now. I think, you know, also journalism has changed. Journalists are a lot younger these days. Um, we talked about social media having an impact. I think um, from my perspective, working in government and being the person who f- feeds the stories out, you know, there is less breaking news. There is less scandal. Um, maybe that's just because we're a better behaved government than Labor. <laughs> but we um, we definitely, like I definitely see a change and I don't know whether it's for better or worse. I think um, the journalist brain in me says I want, I want to see more excitement in the news. The news can sometimes be a little bit dull, um, but then, you know, the sensible media advisor in me says, no, this is the right way and this is how how we should see the news tracking. It's sensible, it's coordinated. I don't know. It's it's a hard one to answer. As someone who worked in that great 2UE newsroom, were you saddened by its closure 18 months ago or a little bit less? Devastated. I really was. I think, you know, you've seen the names that have gone through that place and what it was in its heyday and it was an incredible station. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with some of those people um, that that made to UE what it was and to to see it close its doors was devastating not only for that aspect of it but also because of the the rivalry and the competition and you know no longer is there two different newsrooms that are competing and 
I think that's a really sad thing for journalism. I think it's sad that journalism is headed that way where people on, who listen to radio only have one or two sources to get their their news, and I think that's that's awful. Did you enjoy working on the program side of things in terms of the delivery to programs, like we said before, like if you were to cross to a John Stanley or, or somebody like that of that ilk that, you know, you were presenting a story to them when you were on the on the scene. I mean, news was or and is uh, just such a reliable source, and to have a reporter on the scene still remains a great link to what radio provides in that that immediacy of of, of um, stories. Yeah, absolutely. I loved live crosses with programs. I think it was one of the um, the more fun aspects of being a reporter. You know, being able to get on and expand the story because, you know, when you file for the news, you've got 30 seconds to a minute um, to tell the story. But when you actually get on programs, you can tell a little bit more of that intricate detail. You can expand on what actually happened in court, how people reacted, what was said. Um, Even at a crime scene, you can describe the scene a lot more than you could in, in just a news story. So I love being able to get on there and you know, if I knew my subject, I could have talked for eight, for hours. You know, I loved I loved being on there and, and having that banter with the radio presenters and having the questions and being a little bit, I guess, on edge, not knowing what they wanted to know and just having to be across it all. And I love to talk. My colleague Rachel will attest to that at the moment. She, she says I never shut up. But I um, I loved that aspect of, of live news, live radio. We said that you made the transition to government. What was behind that? It was an opportunity. I um, I was uh, approached by the um, media advisor to the then opposition leader, Barry O'Farrell, who we were at a press conference one day and he said to me, look, you know, if we win government, would you be interested in coming on board? And I hadn't really ever thought about politics. I enjoyed reporting on politics, but it was never anything I had considered as part of my future. And when he asked me, I thought, yeah, I'd consider it. And he said, look, come back to me with a list of names that you'd be interested in working for. And so I went away and I thought about it. And at the time I was interested in working in portfolios that I believed I had, you know, some affinity with such as, you know, corrections or the attorney general or police, emergency services, things that I enjoyed. So I went back to him with a list. And at the same time, I decided I would approach Michael Gallagher personally. And I I remember emailing him and saying, you know, I'm writing to you today, not because I want a news grab, but I'd actually like to work for you. And I didn't hear anything back for a while and the election came and went. I covered part of the election and I thought, you know, no big deal. I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. And then one day I was reading the six o'clock news and I had a missed call. And I remember I called my mum. I'm like, mum, I've got a missed call from Mike Gallagher's office. And she said, well, why are you calling me? Call them back. (laughs) And so I... um. Called them back and got uh, asked in for an interview on, I think that was a Friday, I got asked in for an interview on the Tuesday and I sat in the room with Mike Gallagher and um, uh, Clint McGilvray and um, they asked me all these questions They and then Mike said, welcome aboard. And it didn't register with me because in my head I had this idea that in government you would have 50 different interviews before you got in the door, you'd have to have a police background check and all of those things. And so when he said that, it didn't really register with me and then Clint was showing me around the office and he said, and this is your office? I said, oh, my office. He said, yeah, you got the job. And I went, oh. So you, oh. Did, you didn't realise you were on like realize. an event value, you just thought you were in for a chat. <laughs> exactly. So um, that was quite exciting and it surprised me how excited I was and I remember going home and sitting at my computer and typing my resignation letter for TUE and I I surprised myself at how easily I did that um, given how much I loved radio and how much I 
loved doing what I did. Um, so yeah, I went and I remember I walked in and I wasn't meant to start work until four o'clock that afternoon. And it was, you know, 1130 or something. And I walked into the newsroom and Clinton was on the phone and he's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm here to resign actually. And he said, oh, can you come back in five minutes? <laughs> and uh, I went downstairs and, you know, got Was that out. a long five minutes? Yeah, it was a very long five minutes. And um, went downstairs, went got something out of the vending machine, came back up, and he's like, so, so sorry, what, you're here to resign? And I said, yeah, I've been offered a job. And, he, you know, we chatted about it, and he was lovely, very very happy for me, wished me well, and, and you know, we still, we still stay in touch. So what was the main difference that you noticed from working in radio to working in a position in government? Completely the opposite. I think um, I used to say it took, me, it took me a long time to actually transition from radio journalist brain into sort of government media advisor brain. Um, I think there's, I used to say, and I say this to young people in, in journalism, you know, it's your instinct to kind of draw out a story and draw out whatever information you need. Whereas in government, it's a lot more tailored and targeted and, yeah, it's, it's a very different way of writing, a different way of delivering, uh, Essentially, it's the same thing. At the end of the day, it's it's news. You're giving a story to the public just in a different way, um, you know, through a press release, through a press conference. Um, yeah, it's, it's a different way of delivering the news. You're delivering the news via the journalists. What were those portfolios that Mike Gallagher had in the early stages there that you were working with him? So he was Police and Emergency Services Minister. Okay, so... What did you learn about those portfolios that you didn't know beforehand? Um, look, I had, I'd been fortunate that I'd covered a lot of bushfires and crime stories. I think what I learned is the inner workings of those organisations like the RFS and the police force and how they interact with government, um, what government's role is in terms of overseeing, you know, police, the police force, the emergency services like the SES and the RFS. Um, I didn't know. I think I was a bit naive when I came into politics about how it all works and and I'm still learning to this day, you know, um, how it all works and it all comes together and how you can start with an idea over here and it then be delivered into, you know, policy change that changes or affects, you know, thousands of people's lives. I think um, I was a bit naive and how it all works, but I love, I do love politics and there is, you know, there are decisions that are made and announcements that we get to make that I, I'm proud to be part of a government that has made that decision. Dealing with those layers within a political party or what have you in order to get your message out, is that sometimes frustrating? Is the, the journalist in you wants to deliver the information straight away because that's what you're used to. You're, you're used to that immediacy, whereas I would imagine having never worked in government, there is different levels of approval that you have to get before you can actually go out with anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, everything is kind of a whole of government approach. You know, we obviously have targets. We can't just go, okay, we're going to make this announcement and who cares what everybody else thinks. You know, we have to abide by certain targets, certain um, KPIs, um, goals of government, what we want to achieve. And, yeah, I think it took a lot of getting used to having to 
write a press release and then have it ticked off by a colleague and then ticked off by the chief of staff and then ticked off by the minister and, you know, then come back down with changes and then go back up again and sometimes go to our departments or, you know, it can sometimes take three days to get one thing approved and that frustrates me still even to this day. You talked about it earlier how Mike Gallagher had to had to leave office. Mm-hmm. That must have been a really sort of strange and bizarre and sad experience. It was. It was probably um, one of the more difficult days I've ever experienced in politics, um, that along with the Sydney siege. But I had been off sick for a few days. I had a really bad cough and chest infection and I came into work on the Friday because my colleague Clint was down um, with the minister, with Mike Gallagher, at the police attestation in Goulburn and I'd come in just to help him, you know, do all the police numbers before um, I was going to go home again. And he came in and I came in, sorry, and my chief of staff at the time walked past my desk and said, oh, look, there's this stuff up in ICAC at the moment, you know, just keep an eye on it for us. And um, I, you know, was looking through Twitter, <laughs> ironically, and um, and then Mike's name popped up and it was mentioned at ICAC. And I remember calling my colleague and saying, Mike's name's been mentioned. I called my chief of staff again, Mike's name's been mentioned and from there, to be honest, a lot of it is a bit of a blur, what happened in what order. It was quite a traumatic day when, you know, Mike left the parade ground. He came back up to Sydney. He met with some lawyers and, um, you know, at that time he, he didn't know what the allegations were and I think to this day he still doesn't really know. Um, and, you know, I went to work that morning and went home without a job and I remember, you know, we wrote the press release and, um we called a press conference and I stayed back in the office to send out the press release. And And I remember sitting there and while Mike was on the screen resigning, um, I remember thinking, I have to put this press release out. And as soon as I do, even though he's there and he's saying what he's saying, as soon as it's in black and white, it's real. And it was really difficult. You know, you see those movies where people hover over the mouse before they send something. It literally was like that. I was hovering over the send button for so long. It would just, it really pained me to have to hit send on that press release. And, and, you know, there's a lot of emotions that day. I think we all cried. We all, you know, felt lost and confused and scared. And, you know, I just, um, bought an apartment. I had just taken on a mortgage and now all of a sudden I found myself without a job and, no idea what I was going to do next. And, you know, it was a tough weekend, but um, I was very fortunate that then Troy Grant called me on the Tuesday and said, how are you doing? Have you got a job yet? And I said, no, not really. And he said, do you want to work for me? And I said, you betcha, buddy. So is that how it literally works? That's like, literally you know, worked. all of a sudden, like you're within government and you don't have a job. And then I guess you've got to be fortunate or talented or, you know, have the someone's keeping an eye on what you do yeah. to get that call. Yeah, I was really fortunate that I had developed a relationship with Troy. He, um, you know, he was a backbencher and we had just recently gone on a bit of a tour, a police tour, Mike and I, and um, as part of that tour we went to um, Troy's electorate and so, you know, we developed a bit of a relationship and um, Barry O'Farrell had resigned two weeks prior to Mike and Troy had been brought in as a minister. So he'd been a minister for two weeks. He was still pulling his team together. And I guess, you know, I was, it was good timing, if you can call it that. Um, And, you know, I guess he respected my abilities and what I was able to bring to his team. So yeah, I was, I was very lucky. People 
are very often quick to pull down politicians. Yes. Public life isn't easy. How do you then, we talked about balancing emotions as a reporter. Mm -hmm. How do you balance your emotions when you've pledged your allegiances to a person that is a minister working for the for the government when things, stories aren't always positive. What's that experience like? It's difficult. Um, we're in the midst of it at the moment with the Greyhound announcement. It's a decision that is really dividing the community and it's dividing government. Um, we, for me, I've been... I always say that I'm fortunate to have worked for two of the best politicians in government, Mike Gallagher and Troy Grant. They are, I don't know whether it's their humble backgrounds as police officers, they're both cops, um, but they are genuinely delightful people to work for. They are down to earth. There's no airs and graces. They are open door policy, you know, walk into my office whenever you want with anything that's on your mind. Um so I think that absolutely helps when you have those tough days with difficult news. You're able to actually talk it out in a normal fashion. You you have a discussion like you would with, with a friend. You're able to actually talk about the pros, the cons, how we manage it, what steps we take. And, yeah, I'm very lucky that I have two very – I've worked for two very open bosses who, who will happily take your, your advice. How is it dealing with journalists when you do have that negative story? Because, you know, it's all fun when you've got a nice story to deliver, but ultimately if you've got a, a, a story that's not going to be well received, like the one that you're currently dealing with, journalists are digging for stories. How do you deal with that side of things knowing that you want to help them but at sometimes you just can't because of protected information. Yeah, absolutely. It is something that I still struggle with. You know, um, I have a lot of friends who are journalists across all mediums and sometimes there is an expectation that they should get something or that, you know, I can help them out or I can give them information that I can't give others. It's not often the case, you know, on my, um, you know, I'm loyal to my employer and I would never do anything that would, you know, potentially harm them. So it, it can be a difficult balance, but I think I've, I've got enough friends, um, who respect that position that I'm in. Um, you know, there are sometimes stories that we're able to give out and you want to give them to someone that you really like or you know is going to do a good job. When there's bad news, it can be quite tricky. Um, you know, I've had it out with journalists who are mates, you know, um, just recently I had a, you know, a heated discussion with, with a reporter about a story that we had announced and, you know, at the end of it it was like, okay, good, let's just agree to disagree and see you at the pub next Friday. You know, it's, you, you have to take the emotion and the personal side out of it when you've got a job to do. How do you cherry pick stories that you want out there in the public that, okay, you might want to leak the story so that, it becomes a story and it becomes ingrained in that day's news cycle because, you know, you might leak it to the Herald for argument's sake and then all of a sudden Alan Jones is talking about it on the radio and that's how things get out there to the public. How do you decide which story goes where? I think we, we look at the story for what it is and who it appeals to and what we're trying to achieve by making that announcement and who is the most appropriate um, organisation and person in that organisation to do the story. So, you know, we might uh, drop a story to Channel 7 and 
target a particular reporter because of the way they report. Um, you know, often if we have a quirky story, we'll give it to Mike Dalton at Channel 9 because we know that he's going to do a really great job with it. Um, similarly, if we've got a really, you know, good police story, we might drop it to someone else, someone at Channel 9 or 7 or 10 or or if it's, you know, doesn't have good pictures to it, we'll drop it to the Telegraph or the Herald. It just really depends on on what the story is and who who we think will do a good story with it, get it out, um, and, and who we want to get it out to. Your boss is in charge of police, mm-hmm. but he's also in charge of, as we've discussed there with the, the greyhound racing, mm-hmm. is that something you had to bring yourself up to um, fairly quickly? Like gaming and racing is a bit of a portfolio. It's a bit of a strange portfolio is that the people that are in that industry are very much in that industry and it's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. So to get across that and to learn the inner workings of something like that, was that difficult to get your head around? Uh, It was a little bit. I was lucky that when I started working with Troy, he was the minister for gaming, racing, um, liquor and art. So that's all he had. And so I got a bit of an opportunity at a slower pace. It wasn't as intense um, to learn more about the racing industry, get to know some of the racing reporters, learn the stakeholders, get to know them, how it all works. Because it's a big industry, isn't it? It's a huge industry. It is a huge industry and it it was far larger than I ever expected. You know, I've been to the races on a Saturday. I've enjoyed that aspect of it, but actually seeing the flip side and the behind the scenes and how it all comes together um, was a learning curve. And I... I was fortunate to be able to learn all of that before Troy became the deputy premier, which he did six months later, which then we took on a whole lot more portfolios. And then at the last election, he took on police. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a huge portfolio. I mostly look after the police side of things. I've got two other colleagues who I work with and they look at different, look after different areas of his portfolio. Police really is my background. I've kind of had policing in my career since day one. Um, and I love, I love that. I love that I've kind of grown with the police force. There are people in the police force who I've known since I first walked walked in the door at Two UE. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a lot for my boss. I, I don't envy his position in terms of the portfolios he has. Is it satisfying at the end of the day the advice that you offer your boss on elements of policy that become law in New South Wales? Yeah, it is. It is satisfying. And like I said before, there are days that I go home and I'm like, yeah, I'm really proud to have worked on this and have delivered this to the community. There are other days where I find I'm a bit conflicted and I think, "Mm, I don't know if that was the right decision, but it's not my decision to make. Um, And I, I ultimately support the government I work for. And, you know, I fundamentally believe in what they're doing. I wouldn't work for them otherwise. Um, You know, I'm one of those people that I can support anything if I believe in it. And there are days that are difficult, but yeah, nine times out of 10, it's a good day going home. Let's talk about what information you deliver to students. You say you go back to McClay College and, and, and give talks. What is it that you like to get across to those people that are, I guess, seeing you and seeing your career progression and perhaps even seeing themselves shadowing you in many ways? (laughs) It's very flattering. Um, I, I like to be as real with them as possible. I think, you know, I went to McLean and we had a lot of people come and talk to us and a lot of them were people that I looked up to and 
I feel almost like they deceived me in terms of what what it was actually like to work in media. Um, a lot of stuff was sugar-coated and I try not to do that. I try to be as real as possible. I get in there and I say, you know what? It's hard work. There's shit pay. It is long hours. You don't see your family. You are personally conflicted with the things that you have to cover, you know, I never wanted to go and knock on someone's door whose loved one had just died and say, hey, tell me about it. I found that really difficult. Um, and, you know, they, young journalists, students who want to be journalists, anyone who wants to report, um, if they get to do it, they will find themselves conflicted with their own morals. And I try to kind of enforce that when I talk to these students. Um, but at the same time, nothing beats being a journalist, being on the road, the adrenaline, the fun, the people you meet, um, the friends you make, my best friends are all from this industry and I can't imagine my life without them in it. And, you know, I think I'm richer for the people that I have come across in journalism. Um, it's, it's a tough industry, but it's a great one. So what would your advice then be to anyone who may be listening to this that wants to get into media or perhaps even on the flip side and wants to go down the path of becoming a media advisor in, in government or opposition? I think I would say what people always told me, which is be persistent. Don't take no for an answer. You have to be dedicated though. It's not, you know, I, when I got offered the job at 2UE, you know, three months into some work experience, I kind of scoffed at my teachers who told me it would be so difficult to get in. But it is hard. I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones that got a foot in the door in Sydney. You know, a lot of my friends had to go regionally or into other states. Um, it is a tough industry to crack and it's only getting harder with, you know, less players in the field. But I think if you're really passionate about it and you absorb yourself in the news and that's really what you want to do, you'll make it because you know, your passion will drive you. Tess Hammond, thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. There she is, Tess Salmon, Media Advisor to New South Wales Deputy Premier Troy Grant. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Tess, please let her know by sending her a tweet. She's at Tess Salmon. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.